0: Hi, I'm Derek Warwick, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello all,
1: Tom Clarkson here, and welcome to Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. My guest this week is a man widely recognised as one of the fastest drivers never to win a Grand Prix. He came close on a number of occasions, but bad luck always seemed to intervene. I'm talking, of course, about Derek Warwick. Derek arrived in F1 in 1981 with a lot of momentum behind him. He'd gone toe-to-toe with Nelson Piquet in Formula 3, and he'd been successful in Formula 2. And a lot was expected of him when he hit the big time. But a series of poor cars and some career decisions that didn't quite work out left him with far less silverware than his talents deserved. The high point of Derek's career was 1984, in the midst of the brutal turbo era, when he scored four podiums for Renault. But his legacy is defined by so much more than any on-track success, and few drivers have shown as much bravery both inside and outside the cockpit. His is a thrilling and at times deeply emotional story, but thankfully, he's a wonderful storyteller. His anecdotes will have you laughing and crying, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Derek, welcome to be on the Grid. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, So, look, Formula One, how do you reflect
0: on your career? Um, I don't really. Um, I don't really because um, I don't look back too often. People remind me of certain races um, that I had and teams, and I talk to people like Ian Titchmarsh that knows everything about my life. Um, So I I catch up with my life every now and again. I think I did a good job. Um, I think I could have done a better job. I don't think I got the chances that maybe proved that I was good enough. Uh, we will never know that because there's there's the people that um, think they're good enough and then there's the people that get those opportunities and prove that they are Mansell, Senna, Prost, those sort of guys. They always found themselves in... Um, the best cars and what do they do with it they won so uh, i didn't um so uh, it's a it's a it's a miss of mine because every time i raced in sports cars um i was in the best car and surprise surprise i won so um yeah i mean i think um i've had a good career I, i've been honest to myself um i'd like to have it again uh, with the knowledge i have now because i'd certainly change it and i'd probably make a few different decisions um i always seem to uh uh not always make the right decision well let's talk
1: about some of those decisions because there were pivotal moments (laughs) along the way where you could have gone left but you went right um for example 1985 did you have an opportunity to race the williams honda that year yeah
0: in 84 um when i signed for renault it was my big break if you like i I, i'd signed for the works team um started earning big numbers instead of small numbers. Um, So it makes you feel a proper Grand Prix driver. And then um, Brands Hatch 84, LaRousse came to me and was putting massive pressure on me to re-sign. I was talking to Williams um, about signing for 85. I was looking at Rosberg and wasn't sure that it was right. Spoke to the famous three, um, Henry, um, Hamilton and Roebuck. For our listeners, that's Alan Henry, Morris Hamilton and Nigel
1: Roebuck, three of the top British journalists in the paddock at the time.
0: They were my sort of uh, confidants. And um, and I look back now and, and, and I made the right decision with the information we had in front of us. Um, was it wrong? Yes. Nigel signed in 85 and went on and won races for, for Williams. So you could say it was the wrong decision. I don't regret one second of it, Tom. You know, I really don't. I, I, you know, I made the decisions at the time for the right reasons. I didn't know that, that, um, uh, that 85 was gonna be a disaster. I didn't know that at the end of 84, we'd lose all our top guys. We lost Michel Tetou, we lost Mijo, we lost LaRousse. All of them went and did their own team or whatever. And uh, we ended up with nobody. Yeah, we ended up with nobody. We, 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 were, we were bringing people in from the car division um and of course 85 was a disaster the car was was not very good engine was fantastic of course because Renault always had a good engine um but um yeah and then my life my credibility in formula 1 slowed down a little bit but then at the end of 85 of course um I signed for lotus um to be teammates with uh with Ayrton so you did actually sign that contract I signed my part of the contract we had agreed everything um, Uh, We would rotate the spare car and we'd be equal number one. Um, I was under no illusion um, how good Ayrton was. I was looking forward to the competition. Um, To be called to Lotus in the end of December, I think it was, um, 85, I thought I had my signed contract in my hand for them to sign their bit and uh, obviously be announced. Um, but Ayrton had worked behind the scenes with the sponsors and with the team um, because at that time he was pretty hot property um, and convinced everybody that I was not the right person for the job because he wanted to be number one he wanted best bigger mechanics he wanted the spare car just for him um, and he honestly thought And I've and I've thought about this a lot he didn't think Lotus were good enough and big enough to run two number one drivers and he was right you know, I wish I could have been that selfish in my life and in my career. I couldn't. Um, and, of course, there was a lot of hatred towards Ayrton from the British press because um, I ended up without driving Formula One because all the drives had gone by December. Did you ever talk to Senna about it, man to man? No. Uh, I think there was a mutual respect. I think he understood what he did afterwards. I mean, he sent me a card for the new year, wishing me all the best for 85. Uh, for 80, Yeah, for... For, 86, 86. 86. Did he? <laughs> I he was... had no idea that he had um, washed me out of Formula One. Um, never spoke to me about it. Um, but, of course, I was invited to the funeral. I was. I was um, we had a lot of respect for one another. But I, I honestly don't think he realised it. I think he was, he's so tunnel vision, focused on himself, that all great drivers are, um, that I was just a castaway. And, and is the point that he thought,
1: Lotus can't run two number one drivers. And you weren't prepared to go there as the number I never two.
0: had the option. He just didn't want me in the team. He didn't want a, a, a top Brit in a British team with British mechanics, British this, British that, um, because he thought it would just detract. It might, might not have done, but it might have done. I, I think... He he made a clever move because he brought in Dumfries who was number two. Never had use of the spare car unless he didn't want it or he wanted it run in. Um, So, yeah, I I just think that um, it was a missed opportunity. I would have loved to been Ayrton's teammate in equal number one teammate in '86 for sure because it was a good car as well. So, I mean,
1: that was a was that the lowest point of the career for you? Because so you'd missed out on the Williams. For eighty five, you then miss out on the Lotus for eighty six. As you say, you then sort of forced down the sports car route uh, with Jaguar. Um, and of course, you get back into Formula One mid season, but we'll come on to that. How how were you sort of coming into that eighty
0: six season? Um, you, you know, Tom, I, I, I'm never down on anything to be honest. Um, I just look forward. Um, I went to Daytona and, and raced the Busby um, Porsche nine five six. I wanted to race something. Um, and then the Jaguar thing came along obviously which was brilliant and we started winning races so my total focus was in sports cars it was a great championship I was driving for a great team um, racing for Jaguar and I, I blanked out Formula One, you know, and until an opportunity came, um, I was just focused on what I was focused on. I don't, I don't look back. I, I only look forward, um, and I don't regret bad decisions. They're decisions I've made um, for the right reasons at the time. Um, and driving for Jaguar was great, you know. We, we won here at Silverstone. Uh, we went to Le Mans, and I cried at Le Mans because of the emotion and the support for Jaguar was just immense. And then, unfortunately, Elio had his accident at Paul Ricard and then uh, he passed away, um, which hurt a lot of people in Formula 1 because Elio was, A, very talented, but B, a super, super nice guy.
1: So this was Elio De Angelis, who was racing for Bernie Ecclestone's Brabham team. So what happened
0: next? So I then didn't know whether to call Bernie. I wasn't really sure. I, I thought it was an opportunity. Um, but in the end, I thought out of respect for Elio, that I shouldn't make the call. Um, Ten days afterwards, Bernie called me, sent his plane over, and when I sat in front of Bernie, he was disgusted. Um, within minutes of him uh, apparently um, dying, um, he had drivers on the, the phone trying to take the drive, um, which I wasn't prepared to do, I'll be honest with you. And I think Bernie respected that in me. Um, and then the negotiations with Bernie were quite um, short and sweet, shall we say. Well,
1: Correct. What, what is
0: it like? Well, it's funny to because um, yeah. he, he gives me a call. Um, so, so he, he sends a, his plane over. Yeah. So he said, Do you want to drive for me? I said, I'd like to talk to you, Bernie. Um, he said, t- I'll send a plane over for you. So he sent a plane over, flew in. So by the time uh, I got the phone call to the time I arrived at Brabham, I'd built myself up to 100 million, you know, I was, you know, they needed Derek Warwick, you know, he was going you know, to lift the team up. Um, the team was obviously very sad, very down. Um, so by the time I got to Bernie, I, I, I downgraded it to 25 million. So <clears throat> Bernie offered me this number and I said, no, Bernie, Bernie, we're, we're, we're worlds apart here. Yes, I want to drive for you. It's dead man's seat. Um, there's a lot of work to do here. The car's not good. Um, Gordon's lost a little bit of focus. You know, I, I've got a lot of work to do. He said, you misunderstand, Derek. He said, this is the contract. So I said, well, look, before we start talking numbers, let me have a look around, talk to the team. No, no, no. He said, you're not going through that door until you sign this contract. And to be fair to Bernie, he gave me Elio's contract. So I, I signed Elio's contract less than six races or whatever at seven races so he was fair to me um, and uh, it wasn't about numbers anyway because i i desperately wanted to get back into into formula one and i just thought although the car was was pretty awful um we had gordon murray you know and gordon murray's you know he's a magician he will he will put a, a widget valve on and it will go two seconds quicker but of course the car was um, was pretty poor engine was amazing you know we were qualifying with 1,250, 1,300 horsepower, you just take the wastegate off and put a blanking plate on. It was, uh, it was pretty special. Um, but of course, Gordon had sort of lost a bit of interest and the car wasn't the best car. Very pretty car, but it was very laid down, like, very difficult for me to drive and breathe. That breathe because we're led down, your neck is forward, and because I broke my nose so many times, um, I couldn't breathe out my nose, I, and, and did, you know, so there's so many questions to ask you. So, you've broken your nose so many times. Well, I, did, yeah, I did a bit good. of boxing in, in the oh, early did you? days, so I uh, really yeah, so uh, yeah, so I'd um, good I
1: preparation for football, yeah, my, arm, yeah really? it
0: wasn't good. <laughs> yes, get, I was getting ready for the fights <laughs> with Brian Henton and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> oh, really? so you did have problems breathing because of the I driving, had dreadful position. problems breathing, and I was wasn't clever enough to just stop, go out, have an operation uh, and open the airways up, uh, which is what I should have done. So in the car, I struggled a little bit, to be honest, because, because of of this, of your neck um, uh, down into your chest. But,
1: and, and you say it wasn't a good car, but Gordon will tell you that that was effectively the McLaren MP44 from 1988, wasn't it? It was the same sort of low-lying...
0: Yes. design and but obviously it was flawed it wasn't stiff enough because uh, it was yeah. so low and so everything so so compact it was twisting a lot so you would change things on the car like springs and dampers and all that sort of stuff and roll bars and it didn't really make any difference um, I tested a long time at Ricard um, and Bernie came to the test and I remember um, screaming and shouting to Ricardo, um, and, um and Gordon telling them what I thought of the car you know and I don't hold back when, when something's bad. I said, without a doubt, this is the worst effing car I've ever driven in my life. And the door opened and Bernie appeared. Um, and um, Bernie looked at me and he said, What's the car like? I said, Nice, good, it was good, it's good, Bernie, good because I was, I was petrified <laughs> of the man, you know. And uh, and, and he said to me, Well, why well, are to slow then, you know? So, uh, you don't kid Bernie, that's for sure. Yeah, what was it like <laughs> replacing? a driver who's been killed in that car? Did you... Look, my love for Elio, um, you? you know, was deep because everybody loved Elio. Um, but you have to get on with it. You know, when when you drove Formula One in the 80s, um, there was a lot of situations like this. You know, I was the first one um, to, to get to Villeneuve in uh, Belgium um, when he uh, got thrown out the car um, to um, and And you you learn very quickly to create this little safe in the back of your head. And those situations, you you put them in the the, the little safe, and you close the door on Thursday, Um, and you don't really open it until Sunday night. And that's how you get through, because you don't think of Elio, you don't think of Gilles, you don't think of uh, Depayet, all those guys that passed um, during the course of my career, including my little brother, um, I put them in the safe and um and i was able to not think about that situation and just make sure that i was focused on the team lifting the team charlie you know charlie whiting was was um the chief mechanic on um on elio's car so and herbie blash all those guys you know they they focused on building it back up again because you can't dwell too long it it sounds very cruel and callous which i'm definitely not i can cry over anything i mean here on thursday night at charlie's memorial i'd cry my eyes out you know so i'm a very tender gentle person um until it comes to my job and i'm quite hard were they two different people then the guy derek warwick the racing driver was he was hard man I think he was a hard man. He was difficult to work with sometimes. He told you everything um, truthfully. He didn't hide anything. He was not political at all. Um, But when he left the track on a Sunday night, he was very much the family man. You know, I gave 100% to my family at that stage, and that's why, you know, I am where I am, and I'm still happily married, and I've got three grandchildren. And, yeah, I think, you know, I will crash a car rather than hit a bird in the middle of the road and i'm very gentle on that side of of life but don't cross me um don't say things to me that um will hurt me because i come back at you <laughs> the way you're looking at me when you say that <laughs> I'm, I'm having one of your bernie moments right now but
1: um but it's interesting you say you so you compartmentalised the dangers back yes. then into that safe but you did open the door on a sunday night you were very aware of the dangers it's not i will cry on a Sunday night after it was all over. You know, Gilles was a very good example. Um, Can you describe what you found at Zolder in 82 when you arrived on the I
0: came over the top of the hill and I saw the Ferrari um, and stopped my car instantly because I could see he it was, it was in trouble, ran back to the car... And I was just stunned that there was nothing left of the car. The front end had completely gone, as you know, it, it broke. So I looked around for him, and he was um, on the far side in the catch fencing, wrapped up in the catch fencing, helmet off. Um, so I ran across to help him, uh, pulled him out of the catch fencing a little bit. He was completely blue when I got there, I thought already dead. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the um, paramedics arrived. And pro- was Professor Watkins there at that stage? I can't remember. I can't remember. It's all a bit blank. Anyway, he arrived and um, and I just left him. Um, went back to the garage and just cried, cried, cried. Um, because I, I thought he was he was dead at that stage. And, of course, he, he did die um, later on that evening. Um, so we're now in the hotel. Um, everybody's sad. Didn't really eat that night because uh, the the announcement came through that Jill was was uh, was dead. Went to bed. <clears throat> got up the next morning. Showered. Got ready to go to work. I go to the track, and Rhonda, my wife, said, "What are you doing?" I said, "It's race day." And she could not understand because she knows the sort of person I am. She couldn't believe that I was that sort of person, that I would. Be hard enough and callous enough to um, get in my overalls, drive to the track, and race past that same incident, same place that I uh, try to help this man um, lap after lap, and I never once thought of Jill every time I went past that that um, that corner until the race was over, um, and then I remember going back to the motorhome again and just crying and crying and crying, you know. Then then I then I release it. Do you think you were alone or do you think a lot of the
1: drivers dealt with it the same way as you did?
0: No, I think, um, I think some carried it with them and I think it affected them. You know, I don't think they were able to, um, to put it away. I think it affected the way they drove. I can't really be specific on that. I don't really know. I mean, we're all lonely people at the end of the day. We don't want to show our weaknesses to our fellow teammates, if you like. Um, um, I wouldn't. You know, I'd always do all this on my own. Well, we're talking about
1: eighty-two, and of course, you came into Formula One the previous season with Tolman. Now, what what's an accurate description of that eighty-one Tolman? I've read it being referred to as the Flying Peak. I think General Belgrano as well. Is that not? Yeah, so that was the eighty-two days. car, I suppose. But um, let's look at eighty-one. You come in. I think you only qualify for one race Ed Imola. I think you were eight seconds off. I seem to remember. How tough! Are,
0: introduction to formula One. proudest day of my life was Imola 81 because um i i I was becoming a a grand prix driver for real you know when you've come from stock car racing and um running family businesses and all that sort of stuff and all of a sudden you're there you're, you're you're a grand prix driver um i got 500 yards out the pit lane the thing broke down so that was my first thing um and like you say we were seven seconds off of the back of the grid so we were never going to qualify but you always believe that the next race, Rory Byrne and um, Roger Silman and Pat Simmons and John Gentry and all those guys, we had some great guys, you know, really great guys. Um, and of course, we come off the back of a great season, finishing first and second in, in F2. So it was a bit of a surprise. Um, it, was, uh, it was a bad design. And it wasn't until 83, really. Um, when we had a bit more money and we built a new chassis. And the 83 Tolman was actually quite good, which was the 84 car that that Ayrton drove to success as well. You know, At the end of 83, I was the only driver to finish in the points in the last four races. So um, a really big change around. But, yeah, um, the Flying Pig, I've got um, in my garden, um, because they crushed the original chassis into a 15-inch aluminium... Box mounted on a, a disc and presented me with it um, at one of the Christmas parties. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the best car, um, but you still had belief that the next race or the next season um, we'd put it right. Did it change your goals of what you thought was possible in Formula One? Um, I knew it was going to be difficult to survive in Formula One. You know, because I just I wasn't bringing any money. Mm-hmm. You know, I got brought there by BP really, um, and Alex Hawkridge. Um, without those guys I wouldn't have done it and I was just, I was just working my socks off um, within the team and they knew, I mean that's why I stayed in the team you know, there was me and Brian Henton they dropped Brian Henton for 82 it was me and uh, Tio I think um, and then they dropped him for Bruno Giacomelli in 83 but I was always the one that survived and I was the one that was being paid not bringing money so um, I must have been doing something right I suppose Well, one race you definitely did something right
1: brands hatch 1982 you qualify 16 and then i think you overtake didier peroni for second place overtake his ferrari into paddock hill bend on lap 20 or something early relatively early in the race now derek
0: what was going on we were losing our sponsors um it was looking really poor for us um, alex was struggling to bring new people on we needed to show um, a bit of speed somewhere. Um, so we put um, a softish compound um, Pirelli tyre on. Uh, we half-filled the car. We, we ran half tanks. Um, but you know what, it, what it, was? it was? It was brilliant because I started the race and we were quick. I was overtaking cars. And as a racing driver, all you ever wanted to do was overtake cars. And, of course, what you don't do when you get to Formula 1 is overtake cars. So for me to come from 16th, and there I am passing all these great drivers with great cars, and there I am up behind Peroni in the Ferrari, um, and I pass him almost on the outside of Paddock going into Clearway, into, into um, Paddock Hill Bend. And, um, and for the first time, I noticed the crowd a crowd were going berserk. I was seeing programs flying in the air and, and everything. So, then you're overtaking, now you're in second place and you're chasing down the leader and I'm thinking, I'm already at half distance and I'm thinking, maybe they filled it up. Maybe I'm not on half tanks. Maybe I can get to the end. Um, and then, of course, it started, <coughs> started coughing for fuel. Um, so, I dipped the clutch and in, uh, came into the pits and made out I had a, a drive shaft problem. So, yeah, um, And it kept us in Formula One, you know. And and I think, I don't know whether Gordon will ever admit this, but I think we were not clever enough as a team to realise that how big a difference weight made. It was just after that 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 Gordon Murray came up with refuelling. So I think we started refuelling accidentally um, (laughs) by running half tanks. So, yeah, we did cheat a little bit that day, but it, it... you know it got us through you know we did we, we we had to do what we could do to um, to survive and as a racing
1: driver you would prefer to have that kind of a race go from 16th to second
0: knowing you're not going to finish than cruising around and finishing 12th like, well, was, am
1: i putting words in yeah mouth no would...
0: i think it's quite correct other than the fact that we knew also that the heart engine wasn't the most reliable engine so to get to the end of the race was always really difficult for us anyway um, so if you add all those things up, you know, we'd have started 16th and, and maybe finished 12th, um, but, um, maybe not finished at all. So, you know, we were losing our sponsors, you know, we were desperate. So we did desperate things. Well, I remember Murray Walker getting very animated. <laughs> yeah, I um, know.
1: So in, end of 83, at what point do you sign for Renault? Or as, as you've just mentioned, those last four races were going really well. Uh, you finished in the points. Was there ever an option to stay for 84 or yes. did Senna say <laughs> no, no? no? No,
0: I definitely could have stayed for, um, <laughs> no, Senna definitely <laughs> didn't say no. No, I could have stayed with, with Renault, uh, sorry, with Tolman for sure, but I'd already spoken to LaRousse, um, and we were close to doing a deal, and the numbers we were talking about as in remember, you know I was earning 50,000 pounds and paying my own expenses and hotels And so I was earning nothing at Tolman because they didn't have good sponsors So um, all of a sudden we're talking telephone numbers and I'm I just I just knocked out by this um, So I was speaking to John Sarge and uh, Gerard Larousse and and quite It was good times because they'd already signed Patrick Tambay. Bay And they were letting Prost and Cheever go, as I remember, because they just wanted a a, a clean sheet. And I was in London at the motor show with my mates, getting drunk, uh, waiting for the decision whether or not I was gonna stay with Tom and go with Renault. And my father called me, he said, are you sat down, boy? And I'm thinking, oh no, no, don't tell me this. Just tell me, dad, just tell me. Uh, We just had a telex confirming the contract and this is the number. And we got very, very drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so, was Dad your manager? For no, that? not at all. No. He happened to be in the office. No, did
1: Dad... you organise all of your own contracts? Everything.
0: And... Yeah, we did. I, I did everything. We, we, uh, I nearly signed with IMG in '84, but in '84, when we obviously signed for Renault, IMG came along, um, and I'd already signed the contract, which was massive number. I had a personal deal with um, Sergio Tacchini um so all of a sudden I'm now flying to to Jersey I'm I I've moved to Jersey now they were that it was that important um and um and they wanted a third straight straight off I don't need you and I said no no I'm, all right. I'm I'm doing my own thing I think um later on Rosberg approached me to manage me and I didn't do that either and years later we were sat in a bar at Monaco with with Keki and and I said so what would you What would you have done that I didn't do that would have been different, Kecky? He said, I'd have put you in a winning car. He said, I would have got you the right car.
1: How could he be so confident?
0: Because he he had confidence in me. He knew how good I was. Um, And he he was able to knock on doors and sell me better than I could sell myself. And he was 100% right. That was my mistake. That was when you needed managers. But Before that, when I was talking to Frank for... 85, if I would have put a manager in there, he would have told him to bugger off. Um, so it was important to, uh, a little bit later, to have someone that knocked on doors for you. Because it, it was difficult as a driver to be seen knocking on other teams doors as it, you know and that's why these guys have all got managers because they can sell them better than um and they have all the all, all the stats about you as well whereas it's difficult for me to go in and say well you know i was always quicker than patrick you know so that makes me this that and the other and um no i, I missed an opportunity with keki let's just go through it in chronological order so you've now signed for renault Tormbey
1: is your teammate were you nervous about going into a french team with a french teammate
0: No. Um, I remember going to the first debrief at Ricard and getting angry with everybody in the room because there was too many people. You know, the debrief room was was full of people. So um, I had a word with a couple of people and we we trimmed it down to what I think how a British team runs, if you like. Um, What was the language of Renault? Was um, it it English in the garage? It really really pissed... um, (laughs) Uh, Patrick off because he said we have one Brit in a French team and everybody has to speak Brit, uh, English. So um, yeah, we spoke. Actually, his English. English is amazing, though, isn't it? Oh, because he, he went to uh, university. It, he in was Colorado my favourite teammate. He was absolute gentleman. Mm. You know. So he, you never worried that he was getting better kit? Or anything? Never, no. never, no, no. And, and what's more, I, as I knew I, he wasn't getting better kit. You know. So you know, I, I raced with him on equal terms and quite often beat him. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I had the upper hand of him most times. Um, so, um, and I think, I think Renault supported both drivers equally. I really do. Tell me about
1: the team. I mean, how political was it? Uh, you know, Prost had got, I think, sacked by them the That's previous right. year. That's right. And I think was struggling to say a
0: nice word about them at the time. Um,
1: how did you find the politics at Renault?
0: I didn't, um, because, um, Alain came up to me, um, when we were testing, uh, before the start of the season in 84, He said, whatever you do, don't learn French, don't speak French. He said, "Um, just stay out of it, do your own thing, he said, because there's too much politics that complicates driving. And that's what he said to me. Don't speak English. Uh, Don't speak French, excuse me. That's
1: really interesting.
0: Yeah, don't speak. And and you didn't learn French? No, I didn't. I didn't learn French, no. I learned a few swear words, um, (laughs) just to get a few (laughs) points across. Um, But But do do you think that helped you? I do. I do, I stayed out of it. And so did Patrick, because Patrick's not political either. Um, and I think we changed the mood of the team, actually, because with Prost and uh, with Eddie, because Eddie can be a bit of a pain in the ass sometimes, because I was with him, obviously, with Arrows, um, I can see why it all got a bit ugly and nasty. And I think that we changed the mood of the team. You could see the team change, they were happier, they were more focused um, in 84, I think. You know, the car got better. What was sad, of course, was the end of 84 when we lost all the, the key guys. I, I re-signed, as I said to you earlier, um, at Brands Hatch in 84 because i put under so much pressure. And, and I also think that the numbers, again, made me sign. I think I, I half of me signed for the wrong reason because, of, uh, because the, the, the numbers were so great. Well, you scored four podiums, took four
1: podiums in 84, um, and a dream start as well, leading in Brazil. Why do you think... You didn't win a race that year. Um, I mean, there was a lack of
0: reliability, obviously. Reliability. Um, you know, the first race there, leading in Brazil, um, we had a suspension failure four or five laps from the end while we were way in the lead. Whose fault was that? A little bit mine. You know, Lauda come, come was catching me to unlap himself, um, and I raced him to the end of the straight at the back straight. Um, Instead of easing off like a clever person, I kept with him and I thought, I'll make it difficult for him, even though he was unlapping himself, I'll make it difficult for him. He came over thinking um, he had the room and touched my front wheel. And I thought, oh, that was a bit strong. You know, what was that for? And of course, three corners later, the front suspension broke. So it was my fault. You know, I should have won, I would have won that race. And there's that many other races I would have won. Probably one of my greatest races was second in. Zolder behind Michele. Um Everybody was on Goodyear's. We were on Michelin's. Um, and Michelin's were absolutely not the tyre. The next best um, Michelin-shod car was 8th or ninth. Um, so, you know, I, I was doing a good job there. But reliability, you know, and it killed us. You know, every time we were in a chance of a good podium, um, I, I went for the lead at Dallas and crashed. That was my fault. Um, I pushed the overtake button and braked a bit late and slid into the tyres. No big accident, but um, I got stuck there. So I made a couple of mistakes, but reliability as well. So we lost a bit of momentum, but we, we did a. I think we did a good job because there's no way they, they would have re-signed me um, if I didn't do a good job. What was it like to finish on the podium at Brands Hatch? It was special because... All my family was there. My mum was there. She she never goes to races, um, so to do it in front of your your mum. Um, uh, was Why br- didn't mum come to race? She frightened. Oh, really? Uh, she hated it. Uh, she hated her boys doing motor racing. You know, so it frightened her. You know, it really did. You got to remember. Again, we were in tough times where a lot of people were being uh, killed in, in motor racing or sports cars or indie cars. So, and she was very aware of, of what was going on around the world in terms of, of, of that side of it. So, for mum to come to a grand prix was, was, was pretty special. I made mean, three sisters there, I have a little brother, you know, my dad, my uncle, you know, it, it, was, it was almost Real a barbecue affair. a the family. So, yeah. so,
1: what was mum's take then when wind the clock back when, when you started stock car racing? In doing getting involved in in racing
0: wasn't it sort of why can't you play football why can't you play tennis or was there any that kind of thing no it was never really discussed my mother was a a typical old-fashioned mother where she would look after a family You know, she would clean my shoes. She'd uh, make sure my clothes were ironed. She'd do the gardening. She'd cook the meals. She'd uh, almost put toothpaste on my toothbrush. You know, I was totally, totally spoiled because at that stage I was the only boy until Paul came along a lot long afterwards. So, and I was also, because my uncle, that was very influential in all my racing career, had five daughters. So, you know, I was absolutely the number one boy in the Warwick family. So, So it
1: was your uncle who sort of s- sowed the seed and got you involved
0: or um both my uncle and father raced on the ovals um so i naturally followed them into the ovals and raced against them um, and pushed them out and and t- i mean when i look back about s- being selfish we would go to a race my uncle would build the engines and i would go to a race and my dad's engine was faster than me i'd still beat him and i'd win the race and we'd come away but that night we go into the garage me and my two mates Take his engine out um, and and swap his engine. He'd know about it. I I wasn't lying or anything. He would be happy because he knew I was quicker than him anyway. But I would just take his engine out. I would naturally say, "That's the quickest engine. I'm taking your engine, Dad." Yeah, okay, boy. It's not a problem. Yeah, that's the way it was. (laughs) So I raced against them all the time, and it was fabulous. You know, Uncle Stan was not quite as good. Dad was very good, Um, but I was young and hungry and angry, and you know, and I wanted it so bad, you know. So um a lot of that a lot of that um was pushing my way mum hated it um again she wouldn't come to stock car racing it was pretty pretty tough out there you know and i caused a lot of problems you know because um out on the track I, i was only at that stage four foot three or something 15 16 year old but i was causing mayhem out on the circuit and my dad and uncle used to say okay boy when you come in stay in the car because I would put people in the post and all sorts of things. So we'd get back to the paddock and there'd be fights breaking out and there'd be people rolling over my bonnet and I'd see my dad punching people and Uncle Stan and, and they were all quiet and down and the stewards would come and separate everybody. And then I'd unclick my, my, um, my uh, harness and get out the car and work on my car again, you know. So, yeah, until I actually grew up, um, they did all the fighting for me. That's really where I had a lot of the broken noses, to be honest, because I, I was not a sweet little guy when it came to stock car racing, that's for sure. Oh,
1: fantastic. What great memories. Well, you talk about, you know... I just want to ask you, those mid-80s, those turbo cars,
0: what were they like to drive, physical? Again, I think the reason um, I was as good as I was and stayed in Formula 1 for as long as I did was I was strong. You know, I was one of the stronger drivers. They were hard to hold on to. No power steering, normal gated gear shift. Um, They were heavy, heavy cars, you know, and... And with lots of horsepower, you know, when we drove for Brabham, as I said earlier on, with twelve hundred and fifty horsepower. Can you, you describe no, what that is I, like. I, I've <laughs> tried to. I, 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 I always uh, my default is Monza. Um, we were we were running sort of eighth, tenth, you know, and then BMW would come along, take the wastegate off, put a blanking plate on. We got two thousand revs on every gear. Just guess, we didn't really know where it was. And you go out there, you had qualifying tires that would last one lap. You had a qualifying engine that would last one lap. So you had to put it all together in one lap. And I remember going out from qualifying and going really, really slowly because you didn't want to to destroy your your qualifying tires, getting into um, Parabolica and then gunning it. And we had a seven-speed gearbox, it was a sequential box. I could not change gear fast enough. I was just pulling gears, pulling the gears, pulling gears, pulling gears. I was in seventh by the end of the, the, the pit exit so I was going from the pit exit to turn one, on the limiter. It was like a bullet. It, it, I was laughing in the car because it was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. Did the lap, did the lap. I was up everywhere. It was a fantastic lap. Get back into the parabolica um, to finish the lap. And it just went, whoa, bang, and just blew in half. And that happened quite a lot, of course, because they put too much power through it. It's only a four-cylinder engine, you know, a 1500 turbo producing 1250 horsepower and half a tonne car. I mean, these cars now are three-quarters of a tonne, you know. that makes a big difference. So,
1: um, and could you just stamp on the throttle?
0: Or, or... No, no, no. No, you had it. to feed... No, you had to feed it. You, you were driving. You you were the traction control, if you like. So um, I, th- I think, again, I, I don't think back, Tom, um, but they were great times. You were the traction control, you decided how fast you went you, you 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 set the car up you you decided with your engineer what damper settings what ride heights what everything you know you were such an important part of the um, the experience or the, the the driving of the car you know and, and that's why I feel a little bit sorry for these guys because great drivers there's no doubt better than I ever was but they're not so integrated into the car. They're not, they don't feel everything that we feel because they've got 25 engineers that plug in as soon as they come in um, and they've already decided because there's probably somebody back at base that have done the same lap um, in the simulator. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's different. And I how... can see why people like Seb kind of fall out of love with Formula 1 a little bit. I never did and still never do now. I, I love Formula 1. It's in, it's in my blood. How exhausting were
1: those 80s cars? How long would it... Monaco Grand Prix, how long would it take you to recover from
0: a Monaco Grand Prix? Two or three days. As long as that blisters, um, you hurt. Every bone in your body hurt. And I was fit. You know, I would cycle 40, 50 miles every day. I'd go into the gym two hours every day. I'd run six miles every day. So I was one of the fitter drivers out there because I loved being fit. And still, and I was strong. I was bulky. I was one of the heavier drivers with with Berger and, and Mansell. So, you know, I'd put on... It was pure muscle. But they were tough cars to drive. They were tough to, cars to hold on to. They're bouncing all over the place, you know, and, and it, it was just difficult, very difficult.
1: Well, you were clearly a very brave driver. We've discussed Villeneuve and DeAngelis. Um, I want to take you to Lotus. So eventually, Lotus, you, you get to drive full yeah. Lotus eventually... Yeah. But, um, I've got two... Well, first of all, how good was that car and the Lambo
0: V12? Not very good. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when we uh, rolled the car out for the press, um, the first time we, we announced ourselves to the press, um, I was supposed to drive it into the marquee, blipping that the Lamborghini um, uh, um, engine. Um, but driving out of the, the workshop, um, the gearbox snapped and broke off the back of the engine. Um, the car was not strong. And um, we had a couple of incidents where the car just broke in half, not, on, not with big accidents either. So um, just, it, we, we, were new, we were new to carbon fiber and we had, um, we had engineers, new engineers that, that didn't really understand it. We, we weren't a, a massive budgeted team and the car was flexing all over the place. You know, and, and I had the accident at um, Monza, and then of course with Martin Donnelly um, at Jerez. So they, my car didn't break, but his car obviously did break, you know, and um, yeah, it was a tough year, really. I mean, that Monza crash, you know, you're coming out of Parabolica, <clears throat> sliding
1: on your helmet, and I just got this image of you <laughs> running back to the pits. Wanting to get in the spare car. I think
0: two things about that incident. I was too close to the car in front. I understeered off. It wasn't a breakage at all. Um, But I hear hear people say when you're having big accidents, life flashes before you. It does. I had millisecond images of family and things before I hit the barrier. So something in my mind must have decided that this was going to hurt, that this was going to be a big one. Um, And I'm not pulling lies here, that's exactly what happened. And then of course I hit the barrier, then I went upside down. Um, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm okay. Um, and from the time I hit the barrier to I stopped, which was maybe uh, three or four seconds, I um, had the understanding in time to switch off the engine, um, think I've got about 15 cars behind me. I didn't like the fact that I was upside down with the bottom of the car facing them because if anybody hit me in the bottom of the car, the car would break in half. I had 220 litres of fuel in it. I took the steering wheel off, um, so I was ready to get out of the car if it caught fire. Um, like I say, turn the engine... While,
1: while you're still while sliding. While I'm still
0: sliding... <laughs> at the same time head bouncing off the tarmac yes, thinking remember. that hurts you know so all these things are going off and about it goes to show how time slows down for you though it really does but not one second do you think i don't want to get in the spare car You're well like... at that time i was just surviving the incident that's what i thought got out the car i saw the red red light come on i saw i was at the end end of the uh, pit exit um or pit entrance sorry and um and I knew that I had 15 minutes to get in, get into the spare car. It's funny how, how you, you worked that, that regulation rule out in my head. So I ran down um, and, of course, everybody was cheering and clapping. And I was really oblivious to it all because all I remember is going into my garage and saying, set 11, I want set 11 on this car now because I knew that was my second best set of tyres. Um, and, of course, the the guy wanted my helmet, and I thought he wanted me to stop. But, of course, I'd wore a hole right the way through the side of my helmet. So, swapped helmets, got into the car, um, and drove out. And then I had to do a little medical check with Professor Watkins, and uh, I was allowed to race. So, uh, everybody thinks I w- it was heroic. It, my, my mother never forgave me um, because... Uh, when, when you have a big accident like that, my sisters thought was sat watching the race uh, with my mum and everybody screaming. And then uh, this idiot runs down the, down the paddock. You mentioned Donnelly's <laughs> crash at
1: Jerez, which, tell me if I'm wrong, was a car failure.
0: Yeah, it was a,
1: a front suspension failure. Yeah. How difficult was it to get back in?
0: You think you qualified 10th, didn't you? How but, difficult was that? The bravest thing I've ever done in my life was drive that car the next day. I was one of the first to to get at Martin, and he was dead, he was all screwed up, he was dead. And watching Professor Watkins work on him, where he's normally gentle, he was is hard, just ripped his helmet off, straightened his legs up. He knew he had a finite time to uh, to keep him alive. Um, or bring him back to life, I think. Um, so then we went back and we analyzed it and we saw it was a suspension failure. Um, I said that's it you know I'm gonna go away and think about this I don't really want to race and that sort of stuff went back to the hotel with my family father uncle and a lot of mates and between us all we said it's too big a risk you know we don't I, 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 we can't just go out there and race um, when something's gonna break and we don't know what it's gonna break we had a lot of breakages that year so I came back in the next morning to tell everybody that I wasn't racing, and of course the press were everywhere and everything. So went into the into the garage, shooed everybody out, um, um, and my mechanics had worked all night and put a, um, a, a titanium plate in the front footwell to support the 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 forty the fives that, that kept on tearing out the monocoque. Um, so at that point, I was thinking, oh, they've worked all night. You know, Camel were not happy with us. We could lose a sponsor. Um, you could see everybody nervous that I wasn't going to race. So I got rid of all the hierarchy. I got everybody out, out of the, out of the, um, garage and I just had my engineer and all the mechanics. And I just asked the question, will this break? Will this break? Will this be a, this fixer you've worked all night? Will it be okay? Derek, hundred thousand percent that will not break. So I decided to race. My first lap through that corner, which is a flat right, was flat. My first lap, first time lap through there was flat. And, uh, and I still think today, that was the bravest thing I've ever done. To have the commitment that I believed that my mechanics told me that it was okay, then as for me, that was okay, you know? And uh, I remember coming back into the garage and everybody clapping because I just thought it was heroic. know, Monza wasn't heroic. Jerez was heroic. I think that was tough. And then we qualified 10th, and then the uh, gearbox broke while running 8th or something. So, um, again, another reliability problem. If I look at my stats, 50% of every race I started, I broke down in. So, you know, it's it was a tough time to be a dr- racing driver, for sure.
1: How important was your bond with your mechanics very, all the way through your career? Very. They were my mates.
0: I think, you know as a racing driver you're supposed to suck up to the sponsor and to the team bosses and everything i never did you know i went to the pizza place with my mechanics and um, my engineer uh, because they were the people that were looking after me they're the people i respected they were the people that i related to you know i come from that kind of life you know i was my own mechanic you know i built my own engines i built my own chassis uh, so yeah the rapport i had with everybody i don't think I don't think anyone that I've ever worked with would have a bad word about me or me them. Um, I, I, I worked hard for them to give me 100%, and I would be 100% honest with them. I would sometimes come out and say, sorry, guys, I left two tents out there. In
1: 1991, your younger brother, Paul, who you've been, been such a supporter of, he was racing in the British Formula 3000 championship. He... Um, was killed at Alton Park. How did that affect your love of motorsport? Um. Even now it's such an emotional subject I can see.
0: Did it change it forever? No, not really. Um. I think uh it was tough. You know, Paul was the apple of my eye. I loved him. Um he was super quick, super handsome. Um he understood motor racing, he loved motor racing. Was he quicker than his older brother? He was quicker than his <laughs> older brother. He 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 uh he kept all the good things and threw away all the bad things. But you know, you have that such self belief as a racing driver that would never happen to you and it keeps you going. And uh when Paul died it was the first race that I didn't go and support him. So uh, I got a phone call from... Um, I'd ring him all through qualifying. He's on pole. Um, his mates were there. He'd take Paul's phone. The race would start. And um, where's Paul? Um, he's, he's leading. Okay, uh, what's going on? Um, ring him back, five seconds. Now, I'm playing golf, all right? I'm playing golf with my wife. I'm coming down the 14th, where is he? He's five seconds in the lead, everything all right? Yeah, it's okay, good. Hit off in 15, um, where's Paul? Uh, Paul's fine, uh, everything's good. Um, tee off on 16, where's Paul? Oh, uh, hang on, um, oh, there's a red flag. Where's Paul? Oh, it's all right, uh, Paul's okay. Um, he's, had a, he's had a bit of an accident, but he's out of the car. Um, so I think, oh, okay. So I tee off. I've got a five iron to the green. I, I remember it so, so obviously. I've uh, got five iron to the green. Dad rings me. Um, Derek, get here now. They've called for a helicopter. It looks bad. So the funny bit of this story really is um, Rhonda and I start crying. The 16th at Lemoy is right next to the clubhouse um, to the pro shop. We ran off, off, uh, off the thing through our clubs at the pro shop, both crying, people standing back thinking, well, that must've been a hell of a game. Um, yeah, because obviously not knowing what's going on, you know, thinking we've had a fight on the, on the golf course and we're not playing golf anymore. Uh, made some phone calls, got a private plane organized, flew straight to Manchester, and he died while I was in the air. Um, so the toughest time for me was um, by that time, uh, Roland Dane, um, um, my dad, Bill Bridges, uh, Tillman, Lencer, all Paul's close friends and family it was, was all there. And I met them at, um, Manchester Airport, you know, and, uh, it was tough, mate. It was, because then we had to get in a car, um, and drive from there to Oxford, you know, which was six hour drive or whatever it was to meet my three sisters. My mum. So it was tough, and uh, we had the funeral, Um, and then I, uh, through a moment of weakness, I said to mum that I wasn't gonna race again. I mean, simple, Um, I'm not gonna race again, no way. Or she made me uh, promise, I should say. So anyway, I had the funeral, it was very emotional, and um, a great funeral. I have great respect from everybody. Um, Tributes from Bernie and Ayrton and everyone. And um, so then I had to make the decision. You know, am I now going to stop motor racing? So I'm in 91. I'm driving, um, obviously, for Jaguar. Um, Next race, Nürburgring. Uh, Tom Walkershaw comes on and, what are you doing, what are you doing, Derek? Um, So I got my family together and I remember... My mum's just cleaned my shoes again. You know, she's not exactly um, that involved in in motor racing, so she's never really had an opinion on things. So I had a big family meeting: my sisters, brother-in-law's dad, uncle, and said, "Look, I've decided um, I'm going to go test a car in um, Austria to see whether or not I want to race at Nurburgring." Um, sisters were crying. Um, dad was keeping quiet, but Mum stood up and said, "Hang on." He's one of the greatest racing drivers in England, in Britain, not the world, um, in England. Um, and he's got to go and see. He's got to make his own decision whether or not he wants to stop from motor racing. Um, and that's the, the wisest words my mother had ever used. That must have blown you away, given all her... It blew the whole family away. It stopped everybody in their tracks. So I went to Austria, uh, did the first day. Um, I think I was just done an automatic, to be honest. It wasn't really... Um, I was quick, but not super quick, Um, did a load of testing, and then on my last run, they put some different dampers on, and one of the dampers broke coming into the Bosch curve, 220 mile an hour, spun about six times, round and round and round, into the gravel trap, no no big hits or anything, got out the car, jumped in the hire car, went back to the hotel and just cried, you know. Didn't sleep all night, and then about four o'clock in the morning, I remember being in the in the in the bathroom, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, "Make a decision, Derek. You know, you've got to you've either got to go home, um, or you've got to give this hundred percent." And that's when I put Paul in the safe. Went back out the next day um, and broke the lap record, um, and that was difficult because all the mechanics didn't know how to handle me. You know, they knew how close I was to Paul. They knew how emotional it was for me. They knew how um, I was crying in between sessions um, and went to Nürburgring and won the race. So, um, and that's when I learned that I could put him in this safe um, and uh, bring him out on Sunday. Sunday. So did it take any of the love from the sport? No, because um, we were both prepared to take those risks. Um, Obviously it was very close. Um, and I, I, I didn't lose any love for my sport. You know, I, I love my sport and still do. And, um, and that's why I'm here today. And you love driving too much to give it up. Yeah. Yeah. I was Was still,
1: if you break it all down, you loved driving too much. Is that how you justify it? I was
0: not going to stop being a racing driver, um, until it was right for me to stop. And that was the end of 93. Um, uh, at ni- end of 93, I was 38 or whatever it was. Um, and I decided that, um, I, uh, wasn't quite quick enough. You know, the, that, um, I wasn't quite as committed as I'd been, um, in the past, uh, 10, 12 years or whatever. And I stopped. It was simple. I just stopped, you know. It, it, it Did was, you miss it? No. No, uh, when you, when you stop at the right time, it's the right time. You know, at 38, you're not going to be racing. I mean, I see Kimi out there at 40, um, and, and I, think it's, I, I think it's brilliant. He still loves his motor racing. He hates all this crap that goes on around him. Um, but as a racing driver, as a pure racing driver, he loves it. Mm. And he's still quick enough. We can see that. Mm. I don't. I think I lost a few tenths, and I wasn't prepared to race um, knowing that I wasn't quite quick enough but anymore. Did
1: you lose a few tenths as a result
0: of pull? Or no. Or just age? And... No, age motivation motivation not so much but I had a lot of um, problems in my businesses at that time we were losing a lot of money and I was trying to support the businesses Um, I was working 12 hours a day um, keeping the businesses going um, and being a racing driver which is absolutely wrong so that's why I stopped
1: what were the businesses can you sorry what were the businesses? i had
0: um, six garages um all okay. honda selling new and used um we had some really tough times i i, I expanded too quickly um i've got a, i had building companies that were building residential houses um uh, we had triple eight so you know i was employing 250 people um so mm. it was not the right circumstance to be a racing driver mm. quickly ask you about your sports cars what did it mean to win Le Mans? I, I think uh, racing sports cars was good because A sports cars were great cars, um, but it also proved that how easy it is to win again. It, it reminded me how easy it is to win races. You know, when I watch Formula One, um, who's got the toughest job? The guy that qualifies 18th and finishes 12th or the guy that that starts on pole and wins the race? Well, I'm afraid it's pole, win the race. You know, winning's always been easy, I think, um, as has been for me in sports cars, Winning Le Mans with Jean as a as team manager um, and winning the World Championship in 92 with Peugeot was good because I wanted to pin something on, on Paul. You know, I wanted, I wanted to remember Paul with something big and Le Mans was big. And, and with Jean, to be fair to him, you know, French team, French driver, Yannick Dalmas, my teammate, um, he was in the car with half an hour to go and could have finished the race. But Jean knew how important it was to me um, so he took Yannick out and put me in the car to finish the race, and uh, and that's why I've got a massive respect for for Jean top
1: Wow, that's yeah. amazing. So story. I mean,
0: it's a big big move for Jean, you know, mm-hmm. um, to take the take the Frenchman out of a French yeah. car to win the French race, yeah. you know. So yeah. yeah, Jean was a good boss. Yeah, he was a good boss. What
1: kind of racing team did he run?
0: Um, to start with, a very poor one. Um, again, a bit like Renault, I went into the first test at Paul Ricard again. Uh, we had, we had um, five drivers, two cars, um, and something like 75 people in this debrief room. Engine, chassis, tires, suspension, um, everybody in there. And after an hour, I stood up and walked out. I looked at John and said, Can I swear I'm in it here? Or you not? can do whatever you want. <laughs> um, I walked out, and I said, Jean, this will not fucking work. And walked out of the, the debrief room. And Jean came and found me. A couple of hours later, he said, "What is the problem?" I tell you what the problem is. If you want to win the world championship and win them all, you need to change the way you go about um, understanding what's right and wrong with the car. I said, "You want your drivers, your one engineer, your chief engineer, and you, if you want to be in it. So you want a maximum of eight, nine people in that debrief room." You can't have everybody trying to be the most important person in that room, whether it's tyres, engine, chassis, whatever. The very next debrief, there was 10 people in the room. And we we went forward from there, because if we had an engine problem, we'd get the engine people in. If we had a chassis or gearbox problem, we'd get those guys in. If we want to know about the tyres, we'd get them in. But if you get everybody in the same room, everybody wants to be, be King Dick. So you never got anywhere. So... And that, that impressed me with Jean that, that he would um, understand that straight away because um, it, it was logical. Um, and that's the way he ran the team. So you can imagine that's what he took to Ferrari, maybe. I don't know.
1: How close, in terms of performance, were those cars of the early 90s to Formula One?
0: Very close. You know, if you looked mm. at the downforce we had um, when we raced at Silverstone and places like that, they were beasts. I mean, they were fantastic cars, you know, and, and if, you, if, you, if you think of the XGR 14 uh, which was the Ross Braun car again, I mean, that was a Formula One car with, with, with um, bodywork, it really was. So I enjoyed my time as a sports car driver, you know, I, I finished third twice in the world championship, missed by one point in 86, won the world championship in 92. Um, so yeah, I, I had a good time with sports cars for sure.
1: And you had your first experience of Michael Schumacher in sports cars. Now, Ross Braun tells a funny story, saying that did he have to separate the two of you at one point?
0: You had a slight Most disagreement. Do we well, what happened, you see, is um, it was the first race back with with Jaguar um, at Nürburgring. Um, a lot of pressure. We were in a little extra hour 14. Um, teammate, David Brabham. Um, I went out to qualify the car, put it on pole. Um, Schumacher went out with a Mercedes beat me I went back out beat him again he went back out beat me so I'm now back out for my last run on on qualifying tires I see him coming and I'm not sure whether he's on a quick lap or not um but I put myself in a a, I, I took myself out of his way but only half out of his way Um, He was on his second lap, so he wasn't on a quicker lap. Um, He had already done his his fast time. And as we came out of the the last corner to the back straight, um, he just drove from one side of the circuit to me and hit the front tire, took the front suspension off and all the front bodywork. So So completely deliberate? Completely deliberate. So I hobbled back to the pits on, on three wheels, um, and as I get in the pits I am furious a lot of the emotion from Paul coming out uh, first race back qualifying he took me off I'm overreacting I get out the car my mechanics are running to me because I'm nowhere near the garage um, but I'm I'm at the Mercedes garage. And I know it's a Mercedes. I don't know it's Michael. Um, so i jumping out of the car um, while it's still doing 20, 30 mile an hour. My mechanics are stopping the car and um, I'm my helmet off, throw it in the middle of the, uh, of the pit lane, run into the... Um, uh, Mercedes garage and Jean-Louis Schlescher was just taking his helmet off so as he's taking his helmet off I'm winding one up to give him one and, and Jean-Louis says no no dad no 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 Schumacher and I look over the, the corner of the garage and Schumacher's running out the back of the garage so I sat off after him I've now got Mercedes mechanics I've got Jaguar mechanics I've got I've got drivers I've got all sorts of people Jochen Mass I've got everybody chasing we go in one one Trailer, come out of the other trailer into a back of another trailer. Go to the front where there's a little um, office or massage table. It was actually. Um, he runs through it and he ch- tries to slam the door on me. I put my foot in it. I've now got him over the massage table, right? And I've got in the room. I think, Ross, I'm not sure who was in the room, really. But I do remember Jean-Louis Slesher from the back of the room saying, hit him, hit him. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) Seriously, you ask him. Um, And Mass pulled us off, I think. I think Jochen Mass pulled us off because he was a a tough little bugger as well. So I didn't hit him. Um, It it went to the stewards, obviously. Um, Not from my action, but from Michael's action on the track. Um, And... um, they said they would do nothing about it. They didn't want to do nothing about it. We're at Nürburgring. We're with Mercedes. We're with a German driver. Um, as long as he come and apologise to me. Um, and he came down to my garage. I, I'd calm down. This, this was is this same was, day? Or? No, this is Sunday. This right. is race day. And he never looked me in the eyes and said sorry. He just muttered something at the floor and walked away. And that, and that really was it, really. So... Um, a bit disappointing, really, from Michael, but because he, he must have known uh, the emotion, but I don't think he wanted to show a weakness because we're about to go out and race. So, um, anyway, that was the sorry.
1: Wow, what an extraordinary story.
0: Yeah. One more thing,
1: though, it's so, so lovely to talk to you, but one more thing I want to talk to you about was presidency of the BRDC 2011 to 2017. So, you were very much in the thick of it when Silverstone triggered the break clause which has all been solved of course just before this year's race uh, new five year
0: deal but how difficult a decision was that for you as president not difficult at all actually um, this contract um, that we're here today, under this because this is the old last of the old contract, um, was bankrupting us. You know, it was not not a difficult decision at all. We um, we had no option but to break the clause, and obviously hoping to get a new contract that was more beneficial, more financially stable for the club and everything. But um, uh, so it wasn't a difficult decision, really. I mean, it begs the question, I don't know if this is the right forum to discuss it, as to why that original deal was signed in the first place. But... Well, I, that was my first year on the board, actually, ten years before. You know, we'd, um, if you remember rightly, Bernie had announced, we, we came to the track like today, and Bernie had a press conference to announce that the Grand Prix was going to Donington. So we had to then negotiate a new contract. Um, and you're right, the contract was, was not bad, but I think the people that were negotiating the contract um the fact that it had a 5% escalator on it. And when you put 5% on a big number, it becomes a very big number at the end of the term. Um, so um, we had no option but to, to break that clause. The clever thing they, they did when they negotiated the contract was a break clause because otherwise we'd have gone for another five years and, and it, it would have bankrupted us. It really would have done. So um, it's good for Formula One. that the, the break clause was actioned, I think, uh, because there was a lot of talk. Um, and it's um, good for Formula One that we signed a new five-year contract. It's good for the BIDC in Silverstone. Um, we've got a great team here at Silverstone with, with Stuart Pringle and Hannah and Nick and uh, all those guys. We have a, an amazing chairman on board with John Grant. Um, and um, we've gone from strength to strength. Now that I've gone, it seems that um, all the good things are happening, so uh, maybe I should have stayed on a bit longer. But no, we, we worked hard in the, the ten years I was on the board and the seven years I was president, and uh, it was an honour. Um, um, if my father and uncle had been alive and realised that, that their son was president of the British Racing Drivers Club, they would have never believed it, so um, I'm proud, very proud. Hey, and you can be very proud of that Formula One career as well. If I was to say to you, best race you ever drove? Uh, then they're, they're not the obvious races. Um, Le Mans was up there in, in sports cars because I won the race. Brands Hatch, um, 84 was great because it was the British Grand Prix. Um, but it's races like Suzuka, you know, where you had problems in qualifying, you're 26 on the grid, and you race hard and really pass cars, but finish 7th and out of the points they're the ones that that really um gave you something to keep motor racing for because nobody could have done better than what you did that day Um, and they're the days that you're really proud and there's it was arrows that I'm talking about and I got back to the garage in 7th place walked back from Parc Ferme and the team had already gone to the airport so um, there was <laughs> you, you race your balls off and uh, so, you know and then uh, there, there's nobody there to even say uh, well done Derek oh, amazing amazing um, best car 84 Renault was fantastic car but so was 89 Arrows the Ross braun, uh little um a10 I think it was that Ross braun had designed for um for Arrows in 89 that was great XJR14 amazing car Ross braun again funny enough um so there were the three best cars I've ever driven for sure best teammate um Patrick Tambay really um I He was fun, um, taught me a lot as a Grand Prix driver, taught me how to be part of a big team, and um, I could trust him. I could trust him 100%. And you can't say that about any other team I've I've got, I I ever drove with. And um, I'd said this in an interview um, a little while ago, and I saw Patrick two years ago. And Patrick said, oh, thank you. You know, It's a really honor to be your teammate, and um, thank you for saying that I was your best ever teammate and how much you trusted me. Derek, could could I trust you the same way? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> could you, yeah, absolutely not. Uh, Good, uh, my favourite teammate for sure. You know, yeah. I, I, had some, I had some fast teammates, but yeah. um, he was one of the fastest. The fastest teammate. If, if let me change this question around. Who was my fastest teammate? Sports cars. Martin Brundle martin brundle was he kept me honest you know he, and he came in bit drives during um uh, 91 but i was super impressed with his turn of speed his focus his ability to um be a professional racing driver definitely the quickest teammate i've ever had wow well derek it's been such a pleasure to speak to you thank, thank you. you
1: so much for your time thank you really enjoyed it thank you very much my pleasure thank Thanks, you Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Turning down Williams in 1985, Ayrton Senna vetoing his move to Lotus in '86, chasing Michael Schumacher through the Nürburgring paddock in '91. How is it possible for one man to have so many brilliant anecdotes? But of course, not all of Derek's racing memories are happy ones. The death of his younger brother, Paul, is clearly still very raw. It's hard to imagine what he and the Warwick family went through at the time and are clearly still going through now. For Derek to continue racing after that shows a bravery that most of us can only imagine and a passion for the sport that continues to permeate through everything that he does. Derek, thank you for your time and for being so open and honest. It was wonderful to chat and I and I'm sure everyone listening really appreciate your candidness. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week with another fascinating guest from the world of F1. Before we go, I want to say a big thanks for your feedback about last week's episode with Ross Braun on the remarkable tale of Braun Grand Prix. That 2009 season resonated with many of you, including James Wharton. That was possibly my favourite episode to date, says James. The Braun Grand Prix story would make a great film. Now, there's an idea, James. Shall we get started on a screenplay? thanks for your feedback and please keep it coming because we really love hearing from you remember to use the hashtag f1 beyond the grid and you can tweet me at tom Clarkson f1 and it wouldn't be the end of an episode without my usual reminder to rate review and subscribe beyond the grid is produced by f1 in association with audio boom until next time keep it flat out